0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Standing in the middle of the Deccan Plateau in India are the great and the good of the British Empire. In front of them is HMS Victorious, Britain's first spaceship. Its smooth lines glint in the sun. A hiss escapes the steam-powered thrusters. The clatter of its giant mechanical computer can be heard. All of this began back in foggy, gaslit London, when illustrious scientists stretched their bellies after eating and plotted how to reach the moon. The government said that if it could be done, then it must be done. Now there are three brave souls on board HMS Victorious, ready to claim the lunar mineral deposits for Britain. They will fight any degenerate forms of life they may stumble upon. The rockets began to blast. The crowd raised their top hats. The telegraph cables rattle off the news that Britain has conquered space. In the name of the king Welcome to Patented, it's my podcast about the history of inventions From History Hit, I'm your host Dallas Campbell That little scene, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading to you Was taken from the prologue of a new book How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon By Ewan Morris, my guest on today's show Spoiler alert, of course, you know the Victorians didn't actually invent a space rocket. But what they did give us, the Victorians, was certainly a way of thinking about the future. They were great futurists so that we could eventually get to the moon. Before the Victorians, people imagined the future would look pretty much like the present. After the Victorians, we started assuming that great inventors would make the future wildly different from today. And this way of thinking about the future, this looking to inventors to shape it all for us, is still very much with us today. If a Victorian bumped into Elon Musk, they would completely get him. They'd understand his modus operandi. The world's richest man set on colonising another planet, set on making humans a multiplanetary species with technology that does not yet exist. This is classic Victorian thinking. So this is an episode about how the Victorians invented our idea of the future. <laughs> Is rubbish and just um, just while we're on the future we're in the future just to let everyone dear listeners know we live in the future and it's rubbish we've just spent 10 minutes trying to turn something on the software for the thing <laughs> why this I want to pause the future until we sort out everything first Anyway, how are you? Congratulations on your new book. I know it's not out yet. You don't think it's out yet. Is it out? When's it come out? Uh, No, it's out
2: in, in... It's meant to be out on the 3rd of November.
1: 3rd of November. It's called How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. I'm holding it up to the camera, and it's got some lovely picture of George Stevenson in his rocket, and other Victorian things. It's an intriguing title because you think, well, wait a sec, did the Victorians take us to the moon? They kind of did, in a way, as you go into in your book, which is wonderful. I thought maybe what we could do is just, before we start getting into it, we could do a little bit of context. What do we mean by Victorians? We kind of have this idea of Victorian. We think of big, you know, mutton-chop whiskers and top stovepipe hats and Britain and the industrial um, but
2: Yeah, pretty much so. Well, I mean, the Victorians themselves thought of it, I guess, as both a, both a geographical and a chronological term, since they absolutely thought of themselves. I mean, the term Victorian starts emerging really by around by the 1840s for reasons I think that aren't entirely unrelated to, to what the book's about, which is about, in a lot of ways, a kind of peculiar sort of exceptionalism, that kind of Victorian view that they were different both from their predecessors and obviously from all the other people who shared the world with them. And that very, very particular notion of progress, which we kind of take for granted, in you know, much the same way that we kind of assume that our futures, whether they're going to be good futures or miserable futures, aren't going to be the same as our presents. That seems obvious to us, but in mean, the 19th century, that's a pretty new way of understanding the way things go.
1: That's really interesting because I think your central thesis in your book or one of you there are several but is very much that the Victorians invented the future like before the Victorians the future was just basically an extension of the present with a different monarch perhaps uh, but actually yes. the, the Victorians you paint this picture of the Victorians suddenly thinking different in terms of the way that they would invent things and the way that progress you know would look there's the, there's a famous cartoon which you talk about the march of the intellect which I've just tweeted actually just because it's such an interesting cartoon and it's this great kind of diagram of what the future is going to look like. Everything from vacuum railways to flying machines to all kinds of stuff. And you're saying that didn't really happen before the Victorians to this same, well
2: No, I mean, there's a historical change that happens round and about the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. I mean, obviously, I mean, these things are never clear cut. Mm. I mean, there's a kind of shift in the way that people think about, well,
1: the world, effectively.
2: The 17th, 18th century world is, if you like, Meant to be, you know, it's static. It's sort of in equilibrium. You know, as, as you said, you know, sort of if the Georgians say, imagine the world a century hence or whatever, by and large, it would be kind of the same. You know, different George, but the same. When Sir Isaac Newton, say, talks about the future, and Newton does actually talk, well, right, quite a lot in private, anyway, about the future, but the, the future he's thinking about is the apocalypse. You know, that's the key event. Newton spends a lot of his time trying to figure out you know, what the chronology is and so forth. But I mean, around about the beginning of the 19th century, you start seeing these kinds of new ways of thinking emerging, both in ideas about culture and in ideas, ideas about nature. So people start thinking that, say, the universe isn't static. You know, the kind of classic Newtonian universe is, you know, it's, it's there, it's static, it's timeless. You know, everything is going around the way things are meant to go around. And then you get ideas like you know, the nebular hypothesis, as it's called. You know, this the which hypothesis?
1: The nebula hypothesis. Oh, I see. The nebula hypothesis. Yes. Clouds of dust.
2: Yes. So things start with clouds of dust in space. You know, William Herschel has seen clouds of dust in space, so things like that. And they gradually form into kind of central clumps with little clumps orbiting around them. And that's how, say, the solar system emerges. So the universe is static. The universe changes. The universe progresses. And humans are like that. Life is like that as well. So you move from the kind of idea of the great chain of being, everything in its place, everything static, to evolutionary ideas that start emerging around and about the beginning of the 19th century. And this is all very radical and all in lots of ways very, very dangerous because everybody thinks that in a certain sense society is modelled on nature. So if nature is progressive, then society is or should be. Progressive. So, these kind of progressive ideas in kind of natural history and physics that are like actually quite popular with political radicals because it kind of suggests that things don't have to always stay the same. Increasingly, you get this idea of progress becoming mainstream. The notion that, yes, the future isn't going to be like the present, it's going to be different. And increasingly,
1: you know, as that kind of
2: absolutely brilliant William Heath cartoon shows. It's going to be generated by science, by invention, by technology. So that's how the future is is, is going to be made. I mean, Heath is taking a mickey, of course. I mean,
1: I'm going to just describe a little bit of the cartoon, obviously, because this is a podcast. And actually, I talk about, here we are, I, I can actually see you on video, one of the vi- Victorian inventions that you talk about, the... Um, what's
2: the telectroscope.
1: The telectroscope. So basically, it was like Zoom calls but Victorian Zoom calls. See, they were pretty, you know, if the Victorians invented the future, they pretty much got it right, kind yeah. of. Yeah,
2: except, except a quote, I mean, what, what really fascinates me about the Telectroscope is you know, it never existed. It wasn't a thing. <laughs> no. I mean, I've seen relatively detailed technical specifications of the <laughs> Telectroscope, this non-existence instrument that everybody thought was just on the verge of being invented. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, from, I mean, in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone and almost immediately people start talking about, well, I mean, if you we can do this and this is fantastic, you, know, you can send voices down wires. Then if you can send voices down wires, then surely you can send vision, you can send images, you can send pictures down, down wires as well. They start thinking about ways of you know, ways of doing that, ways of achieving that. And yeah, I guess in a lot of ways, I mean, that sums up one of the key themes of the book. That's how the Victorian future is made out of this kind of amalgam of fact and fantasy, if you like.
1: Mm. Right. And presumably that exceptionalism that you mentioned, this idea, you know, Victorian exceptionalism came from empire as well. Britain was at the peak of its empire spreading and and, you know, we had that, we, I say we, they had that. Feeling of exceptionalism, like they ran the world, and the way that we do things is the way the world will be run.
2: Yes, I mean, I think it, I mean it's it's very important. I think to understand. I think this is one of the reasons I think that you know, what I'm trying to say in the book matters and should matter and, and resonate today. Is that yes, absolutely. All of this was bound up with nineteenth-century imperialism, the kind of science that was generated in Britain during the 19th century and the kind of future that science was supposed to generate was entirely imperial so to speak. I might almost want to say that you know, this is what Victorian science was for. Science, Vic- Victorian science was for forging empire in different sorts of ways and it entirely depended to a large extent on the on, on the resources of empire. I mean, if one thinks about that, can, the huge real triumph of a Victorian scientific engineering I think is the telegraph, you know, which has in all sorts of ways a huge impact.
1: Let's go through a few let, let's just pause though, because we are jumping ahead slightly. Let's let's just pause and, and have a look at what the Victorian future Actually, look like, and I've got the cartoon in front of me. This cartoon that you mentioned, "March of the Intellectuals," called. There's a little uh, line at the top that says, "Lord, how the world." Oh, I kind of can't read it now. You'll, you'll know. Lord, how the world.
2: Lord, how the world has changed, or is
1: changing, or sort of some, some, something along those lines. Correct. It's some. It's something like that. And in the cartoon, there's you can zoom in. It's a bit like a Where's Wally cartoon where you can zoom around, and look at all the little different scenes, and it's a whole kind of raft of fantastic flying machines and vacuum railways and. Yeah, I mean just sort of take us through what the Victorian future would look I like. I mean it's very interesting actually
2: to compare that you know that William Heath cartoon with the sorts of futures that were being starting to be be imagined during the second half of the century. I mean, look at that cartoon. You know, what's the fundamental technology there? The fundamental technology of the cartoon is steam. Hmm. Yeah, you know, there are yeah you know, there are steam engines, you know, there are there are steam flying machines belching smoke out all over this place. There's a literal steam horse carriage. If I remember, actually, there's a bunch of people,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 just, yes, yes <laughs> sitting on a sitting on a steam horse. The, yeah, there's kind of like there's a kind of flying fish, but it's you're right. It's all steam yeah. powered stuff. Yeah. and
2: then yeah, then and you know, vacuum yeah, railway, amazing you know, sort of vacuum tube company. Yeah, you know, and.
1: Hyperloop, but, yeah, we and have And that. I really mm. like
2: the way, you know, direct to Bengal. You, know, if you if if you didn't know that this was about <laughs> yes. the Empire, that tells well, you. Well, actually, so it's funny. Right.
1: You're, you're right. There's so much dodgy stuff about the Empire. Like you say, the vacuum. But also there's a cannon firing Irish immigrants somewhere.
2: Uh, <laughs> like, yes, really? I mean, off to popular.
1: Off to wherever. It's, you know, it's loaded with the kind of cultural mores and values of the time and, and the worries and the moral panics of the time, I suppose. Absolutely.
2: I mean, by the second I mean it's actually quite amazing, because I, mean, I mean this cartoon was drawn in 1829. Yeah that's a year after the Rainhill trials, you know, the, the famous trials when you know, the Stevenson's rocket comes out on top and kind of makes the future of railway locomotion steam. And then within a decade, people think that steam is old hat. I mean as a matter of fact, so to speak, the Victorian century is absolutely mm. a steam century. But in the Victorian imagination. It's increasing. You know, the future is increasingly electrical. From as early as the eighteen thirties, people are speculating that you'll have electrical locomotion. You'll have boats crossing the Atlantic powered by powered by batteries. So, it's an increasingly electrical future.
1: And that fed into our fiction, didn't it, as well? I mean, it fed into our imaginations, electricity. I think of things like Frankenstein and Yes, absolutely. And such. I
2: mean, Frankenstein's a very early example of that kind of, sort of life being somehow rather electrical. And all of this stuff, yeah, I mean, it, it comes together in kind of stories you know, throughout the second half of the 19th century. You know, electricity is just simply where it's going to be. The world is going to be powered by electricity. Flight is going to be electrical. And yes, I mean, ultimately, you know, when authors of scientific romances, as they would be called, write about travel to other worlds. More often than not, the power that that propels them into space is electricity in some form or another.
1: We'll be back after this short break. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance
2: against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to
1: the Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting, actually, there's a difference, but if you like, the Victorian space age was loaded with actual, this could happen. We could actually physically go to the moon because we've got all this new technology. As opposed to the Jacobean space age, which was people like Bishop Francis Godwin imagining geese going to the moon and all that kind of stuff, was very much still loaded in fantasy rather than a reality.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at those kinds of 17th century stories, sort of travelling to the moon on a chariot pulled by geese or whatever, the point of those stories isn't, so to speak, the travel. They're essentially utopian stories. You know, the authors have decided, you know, rather than having utopia in the Americas or in some hidden, on some hidden island in the middle of the Atlantic, they're going to put their utopia on the moon. And yet, the utopia that's the point of the story. And the way that these stories are, are framed by the end of the 19th century is, as you said, it's completely different. They They can't do it now, but they really do think that it is technologically possible using technologies, something like the technologies they then have, to get to the moon. And they're speculating in fiction how that might go. Around right by the end of the 19th century, unsurprisingly, there's kind of a lot of, you know, what's the year 2000 going to be like? Yeah. Type speculation. You know, so you have you know, newspaper editors inviting people to, to, to write, in. what do you think the year 2000 is going to be like? And yes, I mean, going to the moon, having you know, being
1: able to go to go into
2: space, is an absolutely standard part of you know, how people think the year two thousand is going to be.
1: It's funny actually. I've got loads of these books. I'm holding up a book. It's called The World of the Future. That was written in the late seventies and. 1980s. I seem to think in my own childhood, we spent a lot of time imagining what the world was going to look like in the year 2000, and there's all kinds of exotic space travel things here and space space medicine and.
2: Um, yeah, no, I mean absolutely. I mean, sort of. I mean, it's another example of the way of the future, at least our future, mm. has turned out to be extremely dis- extremely disappointing.
1: Yeah, well- yes, I mean, <laughs> when
2: I grew up in the 1970s, it was absolutely assumed that there would be colonies on Mars by now. And it just doesn't quite match up with reality.
1: It's really funny because all these books that I've got on futures, imagined futures, none of them really predict the internet. No one really predicts that actually the future is going to be driven by the fact, by a bit, well, I suppose, like Alexander Graham Bell, this new form of communication and sharing ideas, which is uh, rather than conquering outer space, we've kind of conquered cyberspace, if you like. It's uh, We sort of missed it.
2: Yeah, nothing like the internet. No is imagined. They certainly imagine all sorts of possibilities, right, for the telegraph, for the telephone, the telectroscope, and ultimately, by the end of the 19th century, wireless telegraphy, i.e. what we we would call radio. But yeah, I mean, nothing like the kind of networked world that we currently imagine.
1: So the Victorians, we've got all these new inventions coming online, things like the telegraph, things like communications, things like fuel moving from steam, the promise of electricity, the ideas of flights, computing. We're starting to see the seeds of the modern world. But the Victorians also invented the future. They really started to look at the future as something very different, not just an extension of the present. And I wonder how that attitude, that attitude towards doing science and technology and invention, we've sort of inherited from the Victorians. I think obviously of (laughs) you-know-who. Why someone like Elon Musk is so popular amongst certain groups and actually what he's done. He does feel like an extension of that Victorian exceptionalism and, and that idea that invention comes from... Amazing people. It's it's people. It's individuals that 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 do invention properly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, there, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things I think going on there as I keep on banging on. Because the Victorians invent the future. They invent a very specific kind of future that's generated by scientific and technological innovation. And fascinatingly, given that. The reality, so to speak, of Victorian invention is that the the telegraph network works because there are huge resources poured into it. Lots of people work to maintain that. The kind of story that emerges out of Victorian culture is, as I say, exactly that, that invention is the province of great men. Invention is the product of particular kinds of inventive minds. The kind of supreme... Purveyor of this kind of notion of who the inventor is at the end of the 19th century is, of course, Nikol- Nikolai Tesla, who absolutely presents himself as you know, the guy who can single handedly deliver a kind of electrical future. I mean, he turns out to be entirely wrong, but uh, that's it. Okay. That's the idea. That's the idea. That you know, invention is the product of individuals and specific kinds of individuals who have very particular sorts of minds, if you like. And yes, I mean, that clearly resonates with particular aspects of contemporary culture. I don't imagine for one second there is an accident that Elon Musk calls the car the Tesla. I mean, he's absolutely kind of invoking that kind of iconoclasm, that capacity for disruption, that the way to invent, the way to change the world is to be disrupted, to crack things open. Which I think is very seductive, clearly, well, clearly very seductive to particular kinds of individuals.
1: The thing is, you're right. And Nikola Tesla, he was the kind of anti-hero of that generation of the 19th century. We like heroes and we like anti-heroes, and he was always the anti-hero to Edison. And obviously, I think you're right. Musk has sort of molded himself in that. But the difference is that Musk actually builds things as well. I mean, that he actually he actually makes things. Well, yeah. Things. I mean, Musk, you know, yeah, the- <laughs> Musk's technology seems to
2: work. Tesla's technology yeah. on the <laughs> whole didn't. Work. But it's, I mean it, i mean it, it's a way of thinking about who makes the future that's mm. in lots of ways very seductive, clearly to some people and but I mean I think the same I mean that kind of emphasis on disruption that is also a very dangerous emphasis
1: yes, explain why I think partially
2: well I suppose these are related but I mean, it's dangerous because if we buy the story that our futures are going to be made by very specific, remarkable individuals, then we're, so to speak, ceding control of that future to people like that. We're giving them the power to say, OK, this is the future that's on offer. This is the way things are going on. And that, I think, has the effect of disconnecting futures, disconnecting possible futures from the people who are, when you get right down to it, going to have to inhabit those futures, so it's kind of ceding control of our futures to powerful, iconoclastic, charismatic figures, and depending on them.
1: Is there a better way? I mean, you're right. We need we want futures that are more democratic and more inclusive. How do, how can we change that? How can we get away from that seduction? I suppose.
2: I mean, I guess in a sense, I mean that's where I you know, that that's why I
1: want people to read the book. Because that is your central thesis yeah. of the book, I suppose. At the end, it's like, well, you know, the, Victor- the exceptionalism of the Victorians, this idea of lone geniuses is great, but it doesn't make for a very democratic, inclusive future.
2: That kind of way of thinking about invention, that kind of way of thinking about you know, science more generally, that kind of way of thinking mm-hmm. about the future. You know, we still think like that now. We, you know, we're still doing this by a Victorian rulebook. And that rule book is saturated with particular notions about you know, the power of individuals, the power of particular kinds of societies, masculinity, forms of racism, whether we're aware of it or not. I mean, That's embedded, so to speak, in the way that we think futures now. And at the very least, we need to make ourselves aware of that. You know, that's not kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, that's understanding the nature of the science and technology. That we now have the nature of the science and technology that's generating, that's going to need to generate, features for us, and by recognising that you know this is how, this is where this came from, then we can start thinking. Of, you know, the last line of the book, if I remember rightly, is you know, the Victorians changed the way that they do things. Well, we we can as well. But you know, to do that, I think requires a greater sense of self-awareness of the kind of historical locatedness. The way we think about it. the things that we take for granted now. I mean, the Victorian century casts a long shadow. I, mean, I think, you know, we, you know, we very often try and pretend that, oh no, we're not, you know, we're not like that anymore. We've cast away that you know, kind of fuddy fuddy Victorian forebears. But in the big scheme of things, yeah, you know, the Victorian period isn't all really that long ago. It's still very present. I mean, it's still deeply ingrained, I think, in the way that... Yeah, that, it is. Yeah, you know, that we do things the way that we imagine things, the way that we think about the world around us.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, hey, listen, thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. We shall pause there. It'll go in my big collection of imagined futures. It's really annoying, actually, that sometimes I read books and I'm like, shit, I wish I could have So there we go. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please leave... rating and leave a review it helps others discover the show and keeps the algorithms happy i love hearing what you think so don't forget to get in touch with any notes any comments any thoughts any ideas you have for stories that we should cover we'd love to put them on the list next time we're going to be talking about lino as in linoleum as in the stuff you put on your floor you've probably never thought of that particular invention but it takes me to a favorite part of the world up in scotland up in kakodi and i'm looking forward to joining you there thanks very much for your company.
0: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms, follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.